0: going to be looking at a portion of scripture where Jesus denounces brings words of condemnation, judgment to towns that he knew very well. The sermon is titled woe to you inhabitants. Matthew 11 verses 20 through 24. This is coming off following Portion of chapter 11 where Jesus is sort of giving a running commentary on who John the Baptist is and his purpose as the forerunner of the Savior and his standing in light of that. But our purposes this evening are found in verses 20 and 20 or through 24. Hear now God's holy word. Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Give thanks to the Lord for His holy, and inerrant, and inspired Word and the Spirit's application to us through His promise. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the idea of repentance is of course foreign to many people. There are those who have heard the term used before, but are not quite certain of what it means. Right, A large majority of people, for instance, think that repentance is required only of the worst of the worst. It's the convicted murderers. They're the ones who need to turn from their sin. It's the serial adulterer. The one who who breaks up families and the messy brokenness that comes from that. They're the ones that need to make amends with the Lord and repent. And yet, when it comes to their own life, the idea of repentance is maybe foreign. There really is no urgency to consistently turn from their own sin. repentance isn't even a word that is in their vocabulary. And sadly, I believe this is This is the approach of much of the modern evangelical world even, where the dominant theme is that of tolerance. Jesus doesn't call us to repent. No, He is a Savior of love, of of acceptance, right? He's the one who said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. He who is without sin casts the first stone, as if there is zero condemnation for any sin. Or, they will say, if there is condemnation out of the words of Jesus, well, it's, it's only to the Pharisees. I think you're seeing this a lot more commonly as well. Apparently, in this view, the only sin that Jesus really addresses in the New Testament is against the sin of Phariseism, Sort of a self-righteousness. Now, of course, much of what Jesus does say is approaching that sin. Sin of self-righteousness. But I've seen a shift recently in this regard. The idea here is essentially this. If if you, if we as a church, let's say today, if we hold to a specific interpretation that claims that this is what Jesus really said, Jesus speaks authoritatively on this issue. We can be certain of that. Many people will say, that's Pharisaism. You're guilty, your church is guilty of being Pharisees because you claim that your way is the only way. Your church, if they hold to any form of condemnation or judgment, well, that's what Jesus came to speak against. Sadly, that's an approach commonly found in 21st century Western culture. And the sad reality is, is this is a tragic misconception of the clear testimony of Scripture tonight. It's an approach that will elicit nothing different than the very words of Christ here. Words of judgment. Woe to you! And this is an understanding, brothers and sisters, which completely covers up that obvious reality throughout all of the New Testament. You know, we see it here in our text, don't we? There is clear judgment, clear denouncement, and not just to a select group of people who are, you know, the the opposition of Jesus. No, this is entire towns, towns of men, women, and children. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. That's judgmental language, if I've ever seen one. And that judgmental language is given to us from the mouth of Jesus Himself. The reason for this, of course, is because all of mankind must repent. Every man, woman, and child. This includes whether you are the worst of the worst or the best of the best. This includes if you are a pagan living in a foreign nation and has never heard of the Gospel. You must repent. And that includes the church of Jesus Christ today. We must repent. Every man, woman, and child in our midst must heed these very words. Because tied into the very message of the Gospel itself is the clear and consistent call to what? To faith and repentance. We see here brothers and sisters, a clear example of what I think Peter alludes to in his epistle. That what judgment belongs where? Or begins where? In the house of the Lord. Or to put it in a different sense, those who are closest to the teachings and wonders of Christ are that much more responsible to do this. To repent and believe. And so our theme tonight is simple. Those closest to Christ must also repent and believe. Those closest to Christ must also repent and believe. That's what we see in these denouncing words of judgment to Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, these three cities. We're going to consider three things together tonight. First, we'll consider the tremendous privilege of these three cities that they had to see Jesus coming and going in their midst. They were first-hand eyewitnesses of these wonders. Secondly, we'll consider the true problem of these three cities. How they had become nonchalant, perhaps, in that reality. And finally, thirdly, we'll consider the terrible plight of these three cities. These words of heavy judgment given to us by our Saviour. So we see it in our text, congregation. In our passage, Jesus directly denounces three Jewish cities that He Himself was very closely associated with. We know that Capernaum, for instance, was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was considered the adopted hometown of our Savior. You could say it was His launching pad of His Galilean ministry. Much like you could say that, that Jerusalem was for Paul. And we see this earlier in Matthew. Matthew 4.13 reads this, "...Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near." Scripture gives us that clear foundation. This was the epicenter of where Christ's earthly ministry began. This is where it all started. And so, these cities, this area, would have been a place that Jesus knew very well. He lived in Capernaum for a significant amount of time during His time on earth. And He would be constantly coming and going. And that means, of course, that that those living in these cities would have been familiar with Him. To put it in a simple sense, these were Jesus' old stomping grounds. Corazin and Bethsaida, likewise, were not far from Capernaum. Corazin was located two miles to the north. Bethsaida, another two to three miles from that. These were also towns where Jesus' disciples had hailed from. And so from our perspective today, I think we could sort of think of it in similar terms to where I minister at now in Wellsburg. We all have these sort of small pockets of small towns spread out very closely you have all these little groups of towns connected together. In fact, the school system all sort of combined. Of course, now they call them alphabet soup schools where they take the first letter of all these different names. So our school district is AGWSR. Kind of a strange one, right, for somebody like me coming from Illinois. What's that about? Aguiser. It shows the close connection there. Everybody, and everybody does, everybody knows everybody. So therefore, the people likewise in these ancient towns would have known Jesus. He was constantly in their midst. And of course, knowing then what we know of Jesus' ministry, these people from these towns would have experienced, they would have witnessed firsthand these amazing, amazing wonders. There's no question that a large portion of His miracles took place here. And I want us tonight to think about the privilege of that reality. Living in one of these towns would have meant you would have constantly been surrounded with the awe of Jesus Christ in your midst. In specific redemptive history. Think about that. Life-changing miracles going on all around you. The blind's eyesight being healed by Christ's gentle touch. Lame men that were around town, get up and walk. Wow! Demonic possessions being cast out by the very power of Christ's Word. That's powerful stuff here. And given how small these towns were, it's likely that had you lived in one of these areas, not only would you have known somebody, but it was probably somebody that you loved that would have been affected by these miracles. So think about that intimacy here. People coming from all over to your little town just in the north shore of Galilee. What's this? Capernaum. What's that about? Oh, that's where that Jesus guy is from. It would have absolutely been enthralling, to say the least. In fact, a few chapters earlier in Matthew nine it says, "Now when the multitude saw it this is in Capernaum, they marveled, or Bethsaida, as one of these towns. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. These men and women living in these cities had a front row seat, brothers and sisters. Seeing the Son of God come in the flesh, revealing this authority over creation itself on a regular basis. That's the privilege. And yet, as wonderful a privilege as that must have been, as much as you and I, I think, would have loved to have been a part of that, Scripture tells us today that you and I have the same unique privilege today. And in fact, many senses, it's even greater. And that's because we also have Christ in our midst, performing amazing, wonderful things. You and I, through the preaching of the gospel, through His Word and through His Spirit, get to experience the same absolutely astonishing wonders, whether it's in Wellsburg or in Pala. Now let's face it; we lose sight of that privilege, don't we? Something that oftentimes, when you sort of step outside of, of areas like such as Palo Wellsburg, even Illinois area where I'm from, the, the amount of, of churches that we have. When you step outside of that, and you understand the privilege it is to, to be raised in an area where you see, where you get to witness the means of grace, it's a humbling thing, right? You go to different parts of the world, and they've never heard the gospel before. It's like, man. I need to really enjoy church. I need to not take that for granted anymore. Reminded of the tremendous privilege that you and I have. Where you and I have been eyewitnesses of the Gospel's power all the time. Where we see Christ's glory revealed in the preaching of the Gospel. We see it in places like this morning, right? You had a baptism... The means of grace, the promises of God to your covenant children it's powerful. We see Christ as the fulfillment in that. Now this of course, no doubt changes how we we our own sense of privilege in that extends then to the community. It permeates seeing the blessing of Christ in our midst allows us, I think, to invite others to join us in seeing these wonders. Right? When you lose sight of the intense privilege that we have in seeing Christ proclaimed here in this place in, in the Word, in the Gospel, it's very easy to not want to invite others. Yeah, there's no really need to do that. You think about it from the perspective of those who lived in these towns. You think that they would want other people from other areas to come to witness these? Absolutely. Hey, get over here. Christ is doing amazing things. Are we the same way? Hey, join me. Listen to the Gospel proclaimed here in this place. Walk away refreshed, encouraged, convicted, blessed. It will change your life. Do we desire the same thing is the question. I think this privilege helps put things into perspective. It it moves us to be mindful of what is taking place when we come here. What it is we're doing. We're beholding the glory of the Lamb who walks in our midst as Revelation points us to. Do not lose sight of that privilege because that's what went wrong with that's our second point. It's that very privilege, I believe, that makes the denouncing words of Jesus here in our text that much more staggering here. Because there's a problem with these cities, isn't there? Otherwise, Christ would not say what He says. There wouldn't be any woe-to-you utterances from His mouth. Well, what is the problem? The problem is this despite the front row seats that they had had to Christ's authority and power, they weren't responding in a way that they should. These miracles, as amazing and as wonderful as they were, did not elicit lasting, changing effects in the people's lives. Not as they should anyway. You you think about that from a standpoint of of redemptive history. What was going on in that specific time was was life-altering as it was when the Old Testament prophets did miracles, but especially with Jesus. That's why the the whole lead-up to our text speaks of of John the Baptist being greater because he's showing us the power of Jesus Christ Himself come in the flesh. This should have been, from a faith perspective, life-altering, but it didn't. This should have moved the people to repentance, but it didn't. Had they recognized through faith the reality in which they were in, they would have turned from their sins in a heartbeat. See, they responded, but they didn't respond in the manner in which Christ requires See, we have to understand, congregation, that that the miracles of Christ Himself, just as really the prophets of the Old Testament, the miracles of Christ demand a response of repentance. It's more than just a mere response of awe and shock. Wow, did you see that? That was amazing. That was pretty cool. There's more to the purpose of miracles than that and that's because Christ performed miracles in order that his authority would be championed because his miracles were a sign of the inbreaking of his kingdom which means that we turn from our sins and that's the central thrust here of our text tonight it's amazing really in when you read the new testament gospel accounts given to us in Scripture, just how conflated the different responses of these people were, how they were so much different. You read about people, right, who witnessed firsthand the power of Jesus in these miracles and who did at times praise the Lord. We'll grant that. But more often than not, we see something completely different. We call to mind the account in Luke 17. The healing of the ten lepers. You know the story. Ten lepers come, they're healed. Jesus said, "Go, show yourselves to the priests." Okay, what's that about? Show them to show that we're unclean. All right, we'll go. On the way, they they recognize they're healed instantly by the power of Christ's own word. And yet, what's the response? One. One comes back, bows down, and gives praise to the Lord. Thanks to God, Eucharisto. What is Christ's response? Where are the nine? What's the response? It's as if the everlasting, amazing nature of these moments were were out long before they were even felt. It didn't last. And so really, congregation, we could ultimately say that the problem for the inhabitants likewise in these three cities was this. They had become indifferent to Christ's presence. They had become indifferent to the saving presence of Christ in their own midst. Think about the absurdity of that. Now, we don't read anywhere, do we, that they're hostile to his ministry. That happened elsewhere, not here. So they had that going for them, I suppose. They're not running him out of town like, like remember the small group of children in Second Kings 2 do to Elisha? Go up, baldy. Get out of here. And judgment comes from that. In the sense of two bears mauling these children. They're not hostile. They're just indifferent. They'd become hardened to the privileged presence of Christ in their midst. In other words, Jesus just didn't do anything for them anymore. Jesus just did not do a single thing for them anymore. You know what it's like? It's like when a marriage is on its last leg. You become indifferent. That's always the last nail in the coffin, it seems. Indifference. You just don't care. When there's no more passion for your spouse, if you've lost all fight in your marriage, I don't want to go through counseling. It's pointless. I just, it is what it is. When you have Christ's presence in your midst, it's a cop-out. Indifference. Hardening. It's the same exact thing. And so it's no wonder then that that being indifferent to Christ's presence in their own lives, that, that they no longer feel a need to repent anymore. It doesn't shock us at all that His life then, because they're indifferent, doesn't enact change. doesn't mold them. So ultimately, the reason for the words of woe have to be seen in light of that. That for these town, that these members, Christ's perpetual presence did not lead to persistent repentance. Christ's perpetual presence did not lead to persistent repentance. And that's why, brothers and sisters, Christ says what he says. See, I think the question that you and I need to ask of ourselves before we even consider the serious nature of Christ's announcement is this: Does the same thing ring true for you, for me? Is our church here guilty of the same thing of Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin? You know, there are a lot of similarities between our setting today and the setting back then, right? We live, right, in a place, in a nation that's heard the gospel before. And most of us here have probably been raised in the church, I would say. Maybe not all. I don't know you all, but that's a likelihood. Think about how many churches are here in this place. I looked. It's 28. 28 churches with the name Christian. Now, we can have the argument of which ones are true and not. That's not the point of this message tonight. And I didn't even count the number of churches that I saw on my drive over here this evening. That's a lot. And yet, and yet, does that show in the life of the people in our area? Does that reality of the presence of Christ at some point, or currently, does that permeate the towns? Does it permeate the culture? Dramatically. Let's face it. I think when you sort of digest that a bit, we look around our, our towns, our nation, you look at the life of the average person and there's indifference. Indifference. There's zero tangible evidence of repentance or the need to repent. No desire to, to urgently seize hold of Christ's promise in our midst. Think about how many unchurched are in our communities. It's not for lack of churches. But see, we can't just look at our neighbor here either, can we? No, we need to to hold up the mirror at ourselves. As I said, how many of us sitting here have attended church our whole lives? We've seen Christ come and go in the different pastors that have been in this pulpit. Proclaiming the same message, lifting up for us the, the mercy and the grace of Almighty God through the sending of His Son. And yet, has that really changed us? Now I don't claim to be the spirit or have the discerning power to, to say, "I know it's in here and here and here, I know it's not here, but God knows. God knows if the blessed reality of Christ's presence in our midst, every Lord's day, He knows if that's piercing your soul or not, brother or sister. He knows how it affects you as a new creation or not. You know, one of the ways I think we can, can practically evaluate or answer that question, sort of allude to it, is just look at your devotional life. For a minute, just do that. Do you, that's the presence of Christ in your midst every day. It's not just here in the Lord's day. Do you seek Christ out in God's Word? It's on your phone, it's, you know, in, in your, your own handheld Bibles. But are you indifferent? in this spiritual discipline. You have Christ in your midst there. But is the Bible something itself that you pass by morning and night? You scroll past. I'm going to look at Facebook instead. It does, you know, The Bible it doesn't really do anything for me, so let's see what's going on out there in social media. It's much like the inhabitants of Capernaum. I, I can fall into this just the same as a pastor. It's the same oh good, that's I gotta go through a message. Become indifferent to its impact in my own life and my family's life. It's just another message I need to give. Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends in Christ, may you and I never become so used to Christ's presence in our midst that we're then blinded to see his privilege. May we never lose sight of the effect that it is to take place because of that. A change. A renewal that others can see. Because there's a terrifying reality for those in which this does not take place. That's our final thought tonight. As I said, it's unavoidable that the words of judgment that come from Christ's mouth, it's no light matter. We discover very quickly that that Christ, in this sense at least, He doesn't look the other way at indifference. Because in verses 21 through 25, there is an unlikely comparison that is made between the Jewish cities of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin and the ancient cities of, of Lore, you could say. Those cities which existed in the time of the Old Testament. Cities, mind you, that were severely punished by the Lord explicitly. Of course, we're familiar, I think, with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction that happened because of it. In Genesis we read, right, about the absolute debauchery that existed at the time of, of Abraham with lots, where where men sought to even debase angels. It's just like fascinating the amount of wickedness that was there. There was immorality going on in those two towns that would make you know the wicked of today blush. So we're familiar with that. But but Tyre and Sidon, I think these are towns, cities that, that we're maybe a little less familiar with. Tyre and Sidon were two pagan nations that were known for their influence and success. Preaching through 1 Corinthians, that's a a common theme that came to my mind there. Very much like 1st century Corinth where there was affluence. The church facing that. But in the Old Testament narratives, Tyre and Sidon were numerous, there were numerous times where, where God specifically places judgment on these pagan nations. Isaiah chapter 23 is one example. Ezekiel chapters 26, 27, and 28 are another example. And when you read these messages of judgment, which are very lengthy, by the way. The common theme that seems to to pop itself up, seems to dominate the scene, is the sin of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. These nations idealized by these two cities was engrossed with the idolatry of self-sufficiency, particularly from God. They, They don't need the God of Israel. What good is He for us? They had everything going for them. They they had a navy that could conquer the world. They had cedars of Lebanon, that resources like we wouldn't even believe. And so, why would they need God? Who needs a God to worship when you have your every need in self? I think we're sort of reminded of that with this whole Corona scare, right? Think of the different reactions. Well, we we don't need to pray, right? National Day of Prayer? That's silly. I just need to go to the doctor. You see that that tension going on. We don't need God in our culture. Who needs God when when science and technology rule the day, right? As Nietzsche said, God is dead. Sin of self-sufficiency, very prevalent in our circles. It's closer to our hearts than we like to admit, I think. But see, look at the results. Look at the result. Look at verse 21 with me. Clear words of judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now what's being said here? Christ is speaking contingently, of course. That's why the words, if. And of course, it did not happen in the Old Testament that Tyre and Sidon had had full-blown repented like Nineveh did in the time of Jonah. But see, what Jesus is saying is that if, if those nations had seen Christ, myself, come into your midst like you are seeing today, they would have repented. That, that self-sufficient, we don't need anyone but us, but maybe our pagan gods to serve our own purposes, but not the covenant God Yahweh. But if they would have seen Jesus, they would have. This terrible Old Testament nation would have turned from their sin. And see, that's the comparison. That's why Jesus says then, but I say to you, to you that know Me, who have seen Me coming and going, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Oh, man! That's a sobering reality. More tolerable for that pagan nation than the one who actually knows who Jesus is and you know, maybe doesn't necessarily believe Him all, but, but at least recognizes that this is an important person. Yes. And if that isn't enough to convince you, look what he continues by saying in verse 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Sodom and Gomorrah. The worst of the worst. The sin city of the ancients more tolerable for them than for you who are indifferent. Who did not repent. See, what we see here, congregation of Jesus Christ, in these words of woe, these statements from Christ Himself in Matthew 11, there's some things that I think are revealed, some sort of application that we can sort of take home. I think first of all, and it ought, ought not be missed. We learn something, believe it or not, of the degrees of punishment that are there. And I know we don't really talk about it that much, but we gather that when it comes to God's final judgment, there will be degrees of punishment. Now, we're not given a scheme, of course, a, a template. I'm not going to bust out a Larkin chart or, or something that tries to explain all of these different things. We don't know. But there are, there are two groups of people here. Those in Bethsaida, those in Capernaum, those in Chorazin, and those in Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Two different groups of people. One bearing a more weighty punishment. More bearable. So I think that says something with respect to our sins perhaps, right? Right? We can't just say, well, all sins deserve just the same judgment, so it doesn't really matter what I do, right? They're all the same in God's sight, so I'm going to just do this. I'm going to commit adultery because, you know, I've already lusted. No. There are degrees of punishment that we cannot and must not dance around. Proof of God's perfect justice, actually. But that's sort of tangential, I think, to the, the, the main thrust of application here. Because secondly, we learn, most importantly, the responsibility of those of us who have heard the Gospel before. Those of us who have seen Christ, as I said, coming and going in our midst. We have a greater responsibility in our reaction in our walking out and living in light of the Gospel. You can't just say, I went to church and it doesn't impact your life. You can't. We have a greater responsibility for those who have even lived long before us. And that responsibility begins with us repenting. Turning to Christ in our faith. That holds true for every covenant child that's baptized. Right? You could say, "Well, I was baptized. I don't. I reject Christianity. I don't, I don't. That was all bogus. That was my parents' decision. I don't have to make that." Yes, you do. You have a greater responsibility because those promises extend to you as covenant seed. Greater responsibility, whether we like it or not. We have a responsibility. Those who have been raised in the fear of the Lord to see Christ coming and going and bow down and worship. Turning from our sins and fleeing to Him. See, that's the thing too. We can't just say, well, repent. Don't be like these wicked cities. We have to run to Jesus Christ. We need to see Him for who He is. We have to see that He's not just another prophet from our hometown, somebody who can speak you know words of moralistic improvement in our lives. Somebody who, who maybe intrigues us a bit. Yeah, I'll go to church, I'll I'll maybe see what, what Reverend Barnes has to say today. Maybe I'll agree, maybe I won't. We need to see Christ for what he has done. We need to cling to the reality that He is the One who bears the weight of the judgment that is due upon us. He suffered the curse so that we could take up our own crosses in repentance and faith. So we need to see Christ for what He has done. And we also must see, as I said, Christ for what He is doing now. And What is Christ doing now? I could spend the rest of the evening Carrying it out for us. He's interceding for us. We we confess our sins. How do we repent? How do you and I repent today on a day-to-day basis? We give it to the Lord in prayer. Where Christ is the one seated at the right hand in His perfect righteousness. Atoning in that sense of, of looking to the cross. Reminding us of that. Seeing how the resurrection itself changes us. and he's there when we admit to him that we're indifferent do you confess that the lord takes delight when you do god knows your heart why try and con him lord i'm just indifferent lord i'm i'm just going through the motions change my heart Do what you have to do. Knock me to the ground. Send a a plague to waken me up to my indifference maybe. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the message of the Gospel that we have to look to every day. That's the message of the Gospel that we come and, and bow our hearts to. Cling to in times of fear, in times of anxiety, in times of of intense conviction and brokenness. What does Christ say in the next section here? Not part of our text, but we all know it. Verse 28, Come to Me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Brothers and sisters, that is the Savior who knows us, who walks among us, and who will gather us in, gather His church, On that day of judgment, when that woe that is given to us is exchanged for the glory of Almighty God. We will bow down and see that forever. Thanks be to Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we give You thanks that You walk in our midst.